racism and bias cause a great deal of harm in our society and can manifest in often stark and alarming clarity. Examples exist in the workplace, schools, in public spaces, and even in the media. But sometimes racism, bias, and prejudice can be very subtle and insidious. These are microaggressions. They can sometimes go almost unnoticed, but their continual appearance can gravely impact people in marginalized groups. I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and to help us understand what we know, what we don't know, and what we ought to know about microaggressions, I have with me Dr. Monica Williams with the University of Ottawa. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we dig too deep, could you give me your personal definition of microaggressions and tell us a little bit about why they matter? Sure. I mean, there are lots of different types of microaggressions, but for the special issue, we're focusing on racial microaggressions. So the easiest way to think about what microaggressions are are small acts of racism that often fly under the radar. I call them deniable acts of racism because if anyone's called out on them, they can say, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way, or no, that had nothing to do with race. And it kind of can sound convincing. So they're, they're slippery. And um, that's what makes them so frustrating. This term is relatively new in psychological science and in Carmen parlance. How did research on microaggressions get started? Well, I mean, it's important to understand microaggressions have been around forever because discrimination and bias have been around forever and there's an infinite way people can express these things. But the term started with Dr. Chester Pierce, who was um, a black psychiatrist at Harvard. And he, he went there, he taught at their medical school, and he realized that the students took liberties with him that they would never normally take with their white professors to the point where they would give him tips and feedback on how he could improve his syllabus or even how the chairs should be arranged in the classroom. And he noticed also that many of his white colleagues would offer him you know, patronizing advice. And everybody meant well. No one was really trying to be racist, but uh, he didn't appreciate these comments. And he came up with the term microaggression to describe them in contrast to what he might term a macroaggression, which might be like, you know, beating somebody up or lynching them. Um, the microaggressions were the small manifestations of racism. So unlike these macro manifestations, microaggressions could be, again, totally unintended by the people making them. They don't even realize that they're bringing that into a workplace or into another environment. That's, that's what we have tended to believe and assume about microaggressions. Although, interestingly, there isn't really much research that even looks at how intentional they may be or what people really mean when they do microaggressions, because nobody admits to being racist. Even people who, you know, are white nationalists, they don't even admit to being racist. So nobody was going to admit that they did something racist, even if they did. So what we know so far is based mostly then on observations, people's individual accounts. But scientists finally are attempting to apply rigorous research to microaggression. What is the current status of this research? Yeah, so there was maybe a small amount of research on microaggressions that occurred since Chester Pierce came up with the term. But in 2007, 
Sue and colleagues published a very influential paper um, in the American Psychologist uh, talking about microaggressions and, and discussing different categories of microaggressions and talking about how they might play out in clinical practice and in real life. And this really spurred a great deal of new research on the topic. A lot of the research that was done was qualitative, just basically bringing groups of people together with various stigmatized identities and asking them, what sorts of microaggressions do you experience on a regular basis? And then putting those into categories. And we find that the categories that have sprung out of all of this research really very closely match what Sue originally proposed. So we have a really good understanding of you know what these look like. And then we're also looking at new ways of classifying them. And in addition, ways to measure them. So, you know, researchers have taken these experiences and made them into validated questionnaires that we've used to ask people about their experiences of microaggression so that, for example, we can compare the experiences of people in, in different marginalized groups. And now more recently, we're, we're asking these questions of people who may perpetrate microaggressions to better understand their motivations and different sorts of constructs that may be correlated with the propensity to commit microaggressions. When I read the term microaggressions, the first part of that is micro, assuming that they're small. But like death by a thousand cuts, it's not that the impact can be small. It's this constant, systematic, routine exposure to microaggressions can have a real impact. Do we have any research that says really how detrimental these can be? Oh, absolutely. Um, There's, you know... 20 years of really solid research looking at the impact of microaggressions. Sometimes microaggressions are referred to as everyday racism or everyday racial discrimination. And so you'll see a lot of research on both of those things. And when we see that microaggressions are correlated with all kinds of mental health problems, depression, anxiety, um, and they're also correlated with problems with people's physical health because when you're subjected to all these microaggressions, well, it raises your blood pressure. You feel stress. And so we see a lot of problems that are that are related to, to this aspect of microaggressions as well. I have a question that may be a little off base here, but I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there was several years ago a protest of white nationalists that resulted in a death. And it was all about Confederate statues and they really did have an impact on our society, on the people who lived here. So microaggressions, could they also just be environmental cues, things that are not perpetrated by people, but just the world in which we live? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up this event in Charlottesville, Virginia. I lived in Charlottesville for about seven years. I got my, my doctorate at UEA. I moved there from Los Angeles. And so it was a bit of a culture shock coming into a community that seemed, you know, very, in some ways, um, sophisticated, well-educated, progressive, but then to see all of these small celebrations of the Confederacy, it was really hard for me to wrap my mind around when I got there to see streets and parks named after Civil War criminals, and even the fact that there was a holiday in their honor, and the statues, uh, it, it kind of blew my mind. And what maybe was even more shocking was just the fact that people were going about their regular daily business and didn't seem to notice it. It it was one of these things in the background. And even the statue of Lewis and Clark, 
which struck me the first time I came to town. I noticed that with that, there was the kneeling edition of Sacagawea. And it was clear to me that they're basically showing this person in a subservient role. And that left very unpleasant feelings for me. So I'm, I was delighted to see that come down. Focusing, though, actually on what you're researching now, it seems like there's always new things to learn. There are surprises around every corner. Have you uncovered anything unexpected or results that you didn't anticipate finding? Yes, actually, we have some new research coming out in another journal where we looked at the connection between aggression and microaggressions, because there's been some question, should we even have the word aggression in there if people are doing these things accidentally? And I found that the propensity to commit microaggressions was um, significantly and robustly correlated to several different types of aggression. So even though I think it would be too much to say that everybody who does a microaggression is intending to be aggressive and racist, it does seem like the people who are doing more of these are aggressive and racist. So I think it lets people off the hook a little bit too easily to just always chalk them up as unintentional because that's not what the research is showing. Could you go to just a little more detail about that? Within that research, how are you picking the distinction between an aggressive behavior and a, a microaggression? Um, do, is there some overlap? Is there something that very clearly puts one in one category and one in the other? Well, I mean, we looked at it as a continuous you know, concept. So certainly people who are less likely to do microaggressions were less likely to be aggressive in general. And, um, and we use several different measures of aggression, including a measure of like covert aggression and um, a measure of interpersonal hostility. And then um, the Bus Perry aggression questionnaire, which is like one of the gold standard measures. And we found that people who would endorse committing more microaggressions were higher on those other scales. So I don't really have like a cutoff in terms of like, all right, if you score above this, then you need to go to like anti-racism rehabilitation school. But I think it's safe to say if you have somebody that you know and you notice they say a lot of microaggressions, they're probably like aggressive, difficult people. So what do you recommend for people who are experiencing an environment that is filled with microaggressions or they see them happening? Is there a correct way or a more effective way of countering them or confronting people to either educate them or put a stop to behavior that really needs to be addressed? Well, you know, people of color have been enduring microaggressions for a long time. And one thing that we know doesn't work is ignoring them. They're not going away. They've been around since, you know, Chester Pierce, like over 50 years ago. So I think that we have to address them and confront them when they happen. We have to educate people and also just let them know that it's not okay to to behave in that way. And it doesn't have to be um, argumentative or confrontational. You can let people know in a very kind way that, that something they said or did, you know, just didn't really work for you. And, and I think that the more we speak out, the less they're going to happen because people are going to realize, oh, wow, people don't appreciate it when I tell a racial joke or um, do something that would be considered microaggressive. And then I think that we will see the change that we need that will make life a little bit better for um, people who tend to be on the receiving end of those microaggressions, but we have to point them out. And I know it's a bit unfair to say that 
you know, okay, well, people of color who are dealing with the microaggressions all the time have to be the ones to educate others. It is, it is unfair, but, you know, there's nothing like fair about racism. So that's part of it. But I also think we need allies to also step in and say, hey, you know, what you just said about so-and-so was not okay. And we shouldn't make assumptions like that. And, um, you know, that could be really hurtful what you said. Uh, so we need everybody to help reduce microaggressions. It can't just all fall on, on the people, you know, who are, who are subjected to them. If there was anything the public really ought to understand about microaggressions, what would it be? I think the important thing to understand is, first of all, they're really hurtful and they're really damaging, but also that anybody can do them. And, you know, certainly, like I said, if you see people doing a lot of them, they're probably people you want to stay away from. But even like really nice, sweet, innocent people can commit microaggressions because that's what they were taught. And so anybody can do them. And to do a racial microaggression, even even people of color can commit racial microaggressions against other people of color. So nobody is immune. So we all need to be aware. We all need to keep learning. Check in with your friends of color. You can just ask them, hey, by the way, how am I doing on this? They'll tell you. Um, so so we can all learn from each other and, and see it as a, a social growth experience. Excellent advice and things I believe we should all take to heart. This has been Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and I've been speaking with Dr. Monica Williams with the University of Ottawa, who is also author on an upcoming publication in our Perspectives of Psychological Science that addresses microaggressions. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's great being here. You can read more about this and other topics on our website, psychologicalscience.org. If you're interested in sponsoring under the cortex, please contact news at psychologicalscience.org.